Hey guys, just before we get started, I wanted to kind of put a swear warning because I realize I do in fact swear a lot and I just kind of want to make sure if any kitties are listening that uh, you should probably stop now if unless you're a mature child. And also I'd like to say, uh, sorry mom, <laughs> let's get started with the episode. Oh, Canada. <laughs> Sorry, I thought it would be funny if I started this episode by singing O Canada. Um, It wasn't really that funny, I'm sorry. (laughs) Hi, welcome back to the Long May She Rain podcast. I'm Aiden, I'm your host for this podcast. Um, Alright, week news for me. It has been a really bad (laughs) week. Um, I was so distracted this week that not only did I forget to make cover art for (laughs) it, This episode, which I had to very quickly uh, make this morning before I started recording, Um, but I also forgot to finish my notes for this episode, so I had to uh, quickly do that. So, I bet you're totally wondering, what happened this week, Aiden, to make you feel like so much crap? Well, okay, so, uh, I probably have mentioned this before, but I'm going to school in the fall uh, like most people, and, uh, my school that I've chosen is in New Brunswick, and I live in Ontario, and if you know anything about geography, you know, that's far, um, and the problem with that is, uh, if we go to New Brunswick, we have to, uh, self-quarantine for 14 weeks, so, like, obviously we don't spread COVID or anything, make sure we're not sick or anything, uh, and they, they're doing a great job out in New Brunswick, they have barely any cases, which is great for them. Uh, but the problem is Ontario is the second, the place with the second largest, uh, COVID cases. Um, and we're having a hard time finding a place to isolate. Um, we tried finding some campgrounds that take us and it's just not working. Um, I'm looking at seeing if maybe the only KOA in the province, uh, will take us for 14 days. So that's just been really stressful, and I've been fighting with my family a lot over it, which really makes me upset. But the probably the cherry on top of making my week shitty uh, this week was uh, my work. Now, I love my job. I really do love my job. Um, I got really lucky uh, with my first job that all the people are relatively nice and that I really enjoy my job. Uh, but... Um, I, I, I took a long time adjusting taking phone calls at work because I'm a naturally very shy person, as you can obviously tell that I have trouble <laughs> doing this podcast sometimes. But uh, so I took a call and I couldn't really hear this lady on the phone and I, I got the problem that she was calling about wrong and then the phone disconnected. I swear I didn't do anything. The phone just disconnected. So I put it down. I was like, oh, she'll call back like, very soon, and I can help her with her problem, and then when she called back, she, uh, thought that I disconnected the phone, and that I purposely hung up on her, which I didn't, and, um, I tried to help her with her problem, and, uh, then she didn't like how I was trying to help her with her problem, uh, because there was nothing I could do, to be to be honest, and she yelled at me, and normally I can take when people yell at me, because I know it's it's generally not my fault, um, but to be honest, I cried, and I cried a very long time, and it was bad, and it made my week shitty, so that's 
what happened to me this week? Um, moving away from my very sad life, uh, let's get into the topic at hand this week. Today we are discussing Lucy Maud Montgomery. Now you'll probably know her, especially if you're Canadian, for writing the Anne of Green Gable series. Um, you might also know her uh, if you're American, I suppose. Um, I really love Lucy Maud Montgomery. She's probably one of my favorite Canadian authors, and I strive to be like her very much. In fact, I'm writing a, a book right now. I have another project going on along with my other book that I'm writing. Um, about I'm, I'm also basing it on my family history because uh, my great-grandfather was one of 15 kids, and uh, they were all growing up in a similar time period. Uh, to uh, Lucy Maud Montgomery and Anne of Green Gables. So I'm trying to write a story like that, so I just uh, thought it might be interesting. I had a lot of fun researching her this week, and uh, let's get into it. All right, so Lucy Maud Montgomery was born in a town called Clifton, uh, and Clifton is actually called New London now, in uh, Prince Edward Island on November 30th, 1874. And of course, of course, <laughs> being born on November 30th makes her a Sagittarius. And I know we've, ha we've already had a couple of Sagittariuses before, so I'm not going to go over it again about their personality, because you guys know what's up with Sagittariuses at this point. You can just go Google it. I love Sagittariuses. I live with a bunch of them. They're great. So, um, Maud was born the only child of Hugh John Montgomery and Clara McNeil. Now, I've actually been to the house where uh, Lucy Maud Montgomery was born. It's this really cute little house, not very big, with two bedrooms upstairs, and one of the bedrooms is where uh, Lucy was born, and I, I love that house. It's very nice. Um, she was born into one... Sorry born into two of the province's most prominent landholding families, both the McNeils and the Montgomerys, uh, always boasted about their ties to distinguished clans in Scotland. Some members of the family were published authors, and they had relatives who were very active in island politics. I didn't know Prince Edward Island had island politics, but apparently. Um, and as uh, Maud was like growing up, she was very aware of the tension between what she would say her passionate Montgomery blood and her Puritan McNeil conscience. And she was also aware that she had been born into what uh, her, her nearby parish of uh, Cavendish considered high status because her ancestors had long been settled in Canada and they had connections to the old country. By old country, they mean like Scotland, England, and Ireland. And they had financial security and political influence. So it's safe to say she had a pretty good life set up for herself like right off the bat. Like she was very uh, lucky. Now, unfortunately for this idyllic little family of three, tra tragedy stuck pretty quickly. When Maud was barely two years old, her mother unfortunately died of tuberculosis. And she talks about in her diary about one of her first memories was seeing her mother in a coffin and her father crying at the funeral. And what her father did... <laughs> Not so soon after his wife died, but instead of raising his daughter, he was so grief-stricken, he decided to leave her in the care of her mother's parents, the McNeils. He stayed around for, like, another, like, four years uh, until he decided to seek his fortune out west, and he left for Saskatchewan, leaving his daughter in the east coast. Um, I'm sure her father leaving her like that when she was so young uh, 
probably made her associate herself with being an orphan. I mean, she didn't have her mom anymore, and her dad was God knows where in the West trying to find gold, I guess. So she probably felt abandoned by her father. Um, despite this, she had a pretty comfortable life, like, growing up. Uh, she had a lot of friends, and but even though... <laughs> She had a pretty nice life. Uh, Maude, as an adult, would probably definitely look back at her childhood as a time when she believed that she felt unwanted and unloved. I mean, she probably had daddy issues. Yeah. Uh, she even created two imaginary friends. One was named Lucy Gray and another uh, named Katie. Kate, I think it was Katie Maurice. I didn't write down the last name, but I'm pretty sure it was Katie Maurice, who she would talk to when she felt lonely. Um... Me too, sis. <laughs> now, Maud was a passionate uh, young girl uh, who was often wounded by her grandfather's sharp and sarcastic tongue and her grandmother's firm authority. She was brought up very strict. Her, parent, her grandparents were Scottish uh, Presbyterians, so that was probably a, a very strict upbringing. <laughs> um, one thing Maud also realized as she was growing up that boys were given advantages and allowed to have ambitions that were considered unnecessary and unsuitable for girls, and that would definitely probably feed into a lot of the characters she created. You can look across like all her works, and a lot of her um, characters are very uh, strong and like-minded women. Now, actually, the village post office was actually run out of her family kitchen, which actually gave uh, the McNeils a unique knowledge of the neighbor's business. I believe back then it wasn't illegal to uh, read other people's mail, so they probably got, like, all the tea <laughs> in town. Now, she was steeped in Scottish oral tradition, and she listened as local events, both past and current, were turned into stories by her grandfather, who was apparently a very good storyteller, and she internalized the structures and techniques of spoken narratives, which obviously fed into her own storytelling. And in her house, there were daily, daily readings from the King James Version of the Bible and frequent, uh, were, oh, I, why did I choose that word? Word. <laughs> They they read poetry in the house. Uh, she also had access to more books than most of the children who lived outside urban centers, owing to the fact that her family had a little library in their house, which means she was definitely well-read. Uh, and she also had a very good school system out there. Now, uh, her grandparents' collection actually included uh, the school readers that had been used by her aunts and uncles, as well as books ordered by the family, and those brought to her by her uncle, uh, lender George, McNe <laughs> George McNeil, why was that so hard to say, who was apparently a brilliant and successful minister in St. John when he visited during summer holidays, he would bring her books. Now, uh, she read a lot and was always looking for new books by Scottish, English, and American writers, including, and not limited to, I <laughs> found a whole list of certain authors she liked. She liked Robert Burns, Sir Walter Scott, Sir James Matthew, Sir James, sorry, Sir James Matthew Barry, uh, William, William Wordsworth, uh, Lord Brian, Jane Austen, the Bronte sisters, George Eliot, um... John Greenleaf Witter, Henry Wadsworth, Longfellow, and Mark Twain. That's a really nice reading list. Now, she actually had a very early interest in writing, but she was definitely discouraged by her relatives for writing, and they referred to it as just scribbling. Uh, they tried to force her to do more practical 
uh, pursuits that were considered good for women. Now, all her life, like, definitely for the rest of her life, she would resent her family's uh, disapproval of her uh, youthful literary efforts, as I decided to put it, and, uh, and her attempt to find an outlet for her creativity. Now, <laughs> I really blame her grandparents very much. I mean, they were strict, but I really do think that they loved her. Her grandparents were in their 50s when she was dropped off at their door, and they were definitely not equipped to deal with how moody and how much of an extrovert she was and how creative and smart she was. I, I just don't think they were ready for that, to deal with a kid like that. Now, actually, the area in Prince Edward Island where she grew up is gorgeous. Like, Wow. Now, when I went there, it honestly gave me a lot of serotonin because it's just such a beautiful area. I, I, I know I'm not even 20 yet, but I'm so ready to retire there, like, right now. Like, I want to go back there, like, right now. Anyway, in uh, Maud's time, uh, the Cavendish community was a close-knit, self-sufficient, and kind of an isolated farming village uh, full of sober and hard-working uh, literate Scots and Scots-English. Now, it had a really nice school and two churches, Presbyterian, a Presbyterian church, for actually uh, the McNeils had actually donated the land, and a Baptist church, which had been established by the disgruntled Presbyterians, and a meeting hall for traveling uh, speakers, as well as a local literary society that brought in the newest books from the United Kingdom, France, and the United States, which is probably where Maude got a lot of her books. Now, Maude ha actually had many cousins and other uh, friends, and despite the loss of her mother, and obviously the absence of her idolized father, remember her daddy issues, um, her early childhood probably would have been happy and carefree, she probably spent a lot of time playing on the seashore, because Cavendish is, like, right on the coast, it's very nice, uh, in nearby fields, and in the scenic woods, and this would definitely influence, sorry, influence, that's, why did I say that wrong? It would definitely influence her love of nature, and the beauty of the island would definitely inspire her work in Anne of Green Gables, I mean, and in the books, talks, she won't shut up about how pretty Prince Edward Island is. And I honestly agree. It's a very beautiful island. I want to live there. All right, now, in 1890, when Maud was about mm, 16, she went to live with her father. But she didn't exactly get the warm union with her father that she had expected. Now, for years she had been idolizing her father, but I think Maud quickly realized that her dad didn't give two flying shits about her. Uh, not to mention her stepmother, who, by the way, was only seven years older than her, which is gross. Uh, she treated her even worse. Now, she actually pulled Maud out of school to help around the house and with her half-siblings, and in less than a year, she was so sick of it, she decided to go back home to her grandparents. Now, the only good thing that came out of her time with her father was that she actually published her first poem, which was featured in a, P a PEI newspaper, and it actually made her feel like a celebrity. Like, I read a few um, diary entries about how she talked about how, like, how flattered she was that her a uh, poem got picked up by that newspaper. Now, when Maud got back to PEI, she finished up her education, but she had a choice to make. Now, most women by this point in their lives would be engaged or married. 
and that would be their future, but Maude was not, so she decided to continue her education and become a teacher. Now, she took two years of training, uh, actually in one year, like, she was able to compress two years of training into one year, from 1893 to 1894 at Prince of Wales College in Charlottetown. Uh, not long afterwards, she would actually describe this time in her life as probably one of the happiest, uh, periods in her life. Now that she had a teacher's license, she found a position in, uh, Bideford. I'm not quite sure where that is. I didn't, I should have Google Maps that. Um, <laughs> uh, in July of 1894, she began working with, uh, 20 children ranging in age from 6 to 13. She was a very talented teacher, and she would eventually have 60 pupils pupils. I actually visited the little school where she uh, taught like it's it's a cute little one-room schoolhouse and they actually use it as a shop now. They have this like whole village in uh, Prince Edward Island with like stuff from Lucy's life. They even have the church that uh, she went to. It's like a restaurant now which is weird. Um, now, this job actually gave her a lot of free time to write, and she actually ended up not liking teaching much. Like, she kind of found it, like, annoying. But it gave her the freedom to write, and, uh, she kept the job up. After all, there were, like, few respectable jobs that women could have in this time period, and it was mostly expected that Maud would teach until she met someone to marry, and then she would settle down and raise a family. Like, that was mostly the point of university for girls in this time period. Now, actually, instead, Maud saved her money, and she, with financial help from her grandmother, she was actually able to attend uh, Dalhousie uh, University, it was a college back then, in Halifax. Hey, that's where I'm from. Uh, and she did this uh, in uh, 1895 to 1896. Now, one of her favorite teachers was a man named Archibald McKellar, and he was a pioneer in promoting uh, Canadian literature, and he definitely recognized Maud's talent right off the bat and she found his praise extremely heartening like she loved him now in addition to working on her courses she continued writing and achieved more publishing success now it was a year of intense physical and mental and social activity and for her like she had a sorry she had a hard year that year and unfortunately she lacked the money to continue her education she ran out of money to attend university and she was really pissed off, especially that year. The fact that her cousin, uh, Murray McNeil, who was apparently a gifted polymath and who was also a student at Dalhousie, uh, received assistance and encouragement to continue his studies. I can't imagine how pissed off that must have made her that her cousin Murray was able to keep on going in his education. She couldn't afford it because no one would help her. Now, unfortunately for our dear Maude, she was uh, forced to go back to teach in her rural community, which also must have pissed her off. But I guess in good news for her, she actually got engaged to uh, an intelligent and attractive man who apparently was also her cousin. But, you know, like everyone, when you stay in one place for a long time, families get really related. And this guy was named Edward Simpson. Now, Maud was lonely, and she wanted the affection of a husband and the happiness of children. She really, really wanted kids. And uh, she believed that he intended on becoming a lawyer, and she thought that marriage to a professional would give her the financial security to pursue a writing career. Yet, she quickly found out 
uh, that she found him physically and emotionally repellent. She felt definitely trapped, and she was increasingly aware of her mood swings, and she craved stability and structure, and he was just not going to give that to her. Now, she was teaching in a place called Lower... Oh, no. Oh, how do you spell that? Sorry, how do you say that? She was teaching in a place uh, through 1897 to... 1898, and uh, while in that place, while she was still engaged to Edward Simpson, may I uh, add, she met gorgeous young farmer, George Herman Laird, uh, but he was always known by Herman, uh, <laughs> who also, I read he might have been engaged to someone else as well, but I don't know, uh, and she fell in love with Herman hard. Uh, and that spring, she wrote to Ed Simpson to ask for her freedom, which she gave her. He let her go, which was nice of him. Now, throughout this extremely difficult time in her life, she sold poems and stories to periodicals in Canada and the United States. Now, unfortunately for her, her relationship with Herman didn't exactly work out. Um, her grandparents did not approve of him, like, whatsoever. They thought she was too good for him, considering she came from the two largest landowning families, um, in the province, and he was just, like, a farmer, uh, yeah, they were just, like, not cool with it, and, um, so Maud decided, yeah, you're, you're probably right, uh, so she broke off the relationship with him. Now, actually, near the same time, Maud's grandfather, unfortunately, passed away, so she quit her teaching job, and she went back to Cavendish to live with her grandmother. Now, Maud won, like, great respect from her community by caring for her elderly grandmother, and in the safe, familiar environment of her home, she actually had more time to write. Now, she actually ran the post office, uh, since her grandmother couldn't, and she had continuous access to, uh obviously to stamps, I guess, to send her work out, and she obviously had uh, access to all the hot tea in town. Um, while she was working there, she would send out her uh, books and uh, book ideas and poems to publishers without anyone knowing about it. Alright, so in 1905, while Maud was still uh, working at the post office, Maud actually finished writing her manuscript for her book, Anne of Green Gables. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, she immediately started sending it out to Canadian-American publishing companies, and unfortunately it was rejected over and over again. So Maud decided to store it in a hat box, and I read she actually almost uh, threw it into a river. But uh, one day, uh, when she was particularly sad, she decided to reread it, and she remembered how good it was, so she decided to send it in one more time, and the L.C. Page Company in Boston Austin loved it. And when the book about a little orphan girl from Prince Edward Island hit the shelves in 1908, it was a runaway success. The Canadian press uh, decided to emphasize Maud's roots in uh, Prince Edward Island, which uh, in the Canadian press was portrayed as a charming part of Canada where the people retained old-fashioned values and everything moved at a much slower pace, which is nice of the Canadian press. Wait until you hear what the American press... Mm decided 
to say about Prince Edward Island. Now, the American press suggested that all of Canada was backwards and slow, arguing that a book like Anne of Green Gables was only possible in a rustic country like Canada, where the people were nowhere near as advanced as the United States. And I just have to eye roll, because that's so stupid and kind of rude. Like, no, no offense to all Americans, but fuck you. I mean, seriously, that is so so mean like i'm sorry we're not as advanced it reminds me of like americans talking about canada today where they like know nothing about us anyway now i actually want to talk about maude and her husband because uh just while she was writing her uh sorry while she was still trying to send anne into publishers she was actually engaged to a mr ewan mcdonald now reverend uh, Ewan MacDonald was hired as the local Presbyterian minister. Now, he was actually four years older than Maud was, which is a pretty decent age gap, like, it's not too big, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, like, it's acceptable. Uh, he was a reserved and kind of stiff man. He was also a Gaelic speaker, which is cool, because that's, like, my people's language, and, like, we don't know it. Um, Actually, uh, Ewan's parental grandparents had left the Isle of Skye in Scotland and settled in uh, Bellevue, I think that's how you pronounce that, on the other side of the island, and he was absolutely taken with Maud's exceptional charm, sense of humor, and witty conversation, and he loved her storytelling ability. And Maud was definitely attracted to Ewan, who she thought was kind and good-tempered, and apparently he was pretty good-looking. And they actually became secretly engaged on the 12th of October, 1906. Uh, now, they agreed that the marriage would wait until after the death of Maud's grandmother, because they pro she probably wouldn't have approved. And that same year, Ewan decided to leave for additional training at the University of Glasgow. I'm not sure what kind of training he was going for. I guess, like, church training. I didn't know they did that at universities. I guess that's the thing. Now, when he got to Scotland, he felt very socially awkward at his school and intellectually adequate and I just gotta say, samesies. And soon he collapsed with a nervous breakdown, and I'm on the verge of having several nervous breakdowns every day. Um, and the letters he sent to Maud during this time really alarmed her, and when he returned home in early spring of 1907 without his further cr credentials, he was able to, uh, sorry, able to find a post in a community that was so remote from Cavendish that he and Maud could not spend time together or get to know each other better, which must have been annoying that you couldn't get to know the person you're gonna marry. Um, at this point, Maud was probably definitely questioning the sanity of the man she was agreeing to marry, but I think she was so caught up in her sudden success, like a year after this, that she couldn't bear to break up with him. Plus, she wanted to get married, she wanted children, it was all she wanted, and now she had one in her hand, and she wasn't about to let her go. Sorry, let him go. Now, in uh, 1911, Maud's grandmother unfortunately passed away, and her and Ewan were able to get married at her cousin's house, which she called Silverbush, which is actually the uh, setting of one of her books in the parlor of the house, which I have been to. It's a very nice farmhouse in this beautiful area with this big lake and Maud talks endlessly in her diaries about how much she loved Silverbush. She spent a lot of time with her cousins there. It's actually the home of the uh, Anne of Green Gables Museum currently. It's a very nice place. Now, I've also actually seen the replica of her wedding dress at her birthplace and it is also gorgeous and they also have a very long 
long, long letter that she wrote to her friend talking about her marriage, which honestly sounds like something a writer would do once she got married. Even though my best friend is definitely going to be at my wedding if I ever do get married, I still might write her a 30-page letter <laughs> talking about how happy I am. Um, so Maud and Ewan uh, enjoyed a short honeymoon in Scotland and England before moving to Ontario which is where I am from. Uh, I actually live less than an hour from her homestead. I've never actually been there, but I definitely need to visit because, you know, Maud's my bread and butter. I love her books. I love her. Now, she did, of course, come back to her beloved island very often, and nearly all her novels are set there. The exception, of course, is her book, The Blue Castle, um, which is placed in uh, Muskoka in Ontario, and it's actually where the McDonald's would vacation in the 1920s. And if you have never been to Muskoka, you should. It's beautiful out there. Uh, another exception to the Prince Edward Island rule is uh, Jane of Lantern Hill, which actually uh, starts out in Toronto, but the story eventually does move to Prince Edward Island. So I guess one and a half books aren't set in Prince Edward Island. Now, some of her later books draw on characters and events from uh, her husband's, uh, her and her husband's time in Ontario. Uh, because he was a minister <laughs> there. Now, and a couple of people were influenced by their uh, Toronto friends, such as uh, Dr. Helen McMurchy, who was probably a model for the physician in Magic for Marigold. Now, Maud quickly grew into her new position as mistress of the house, and she organized a lot of church events and participated in many community associations, and she would write diligently for several hours every morning to satisfy her publishing company, Elsie Page, who, by the way, was making fucking bank on her books. Now, she agreed to yet another book about Anne, although she had become very tired of the character at that time, and she usually found sequels to be a chore. Now, even though Anne was definitely her most successful character, uh, she definitely wasn't her favorite by far, but she continued to do it because, you know, the people were asking and she was making money from it, so why not? Now, she continued to send short pieces to magazines as well as writing her own books. Uh, in 1911, her novel The Story Girl came out. Now, the character of 14-year-old Sarah Stanley was a skilled storyteller who was probably definitely an idealized version of Maud as a child. And the character of Peter Craig in The Story Girl very much resembles uh, her love, Herman Lurd. Uh, and she he was probably the man that she at this point, probably wish she had married, but did not, uh, right down to having blonde curly hair, just like Herman did. Uh, as well, uh, with her relationship with Lurd, the other characters in the book object to, uh, Peter Craig as he is not good enough, uh, for the character, but, uh, unlike her real-life relationship with Herman, which was broken off because he was not good enough, the character of Felicity King chooses Peter Craig instead, like she did not. Um, in 1912, the Chronicles of Avonlea, a collection of short stories that she reworked to feature Anne in minor roles, uh, was published. Uh, she made trips to Toronto where she gave speeches to organizations such as the Canadian Women's Press Club and uh, where she talked about her literary achievements. Um, some other guests include Marjorie Jardin Ramsey. Uh, who actually took Maud under her wing, and uh, Mary Esther McGregor, who is would be one of Maud's co-authors for Courageous Women, a compilation of biographies. Alright, it's time for babies! <laughs> because 
uh, well, I already talked about Maud really wanted to be a mother, and she finally got her chance actually very quickly after her and her husband got married. Her son, Chester Cameron MacDonald, was born in 1912. Uh, in 1914, she gave birth to another boy that she named Hugh Alexander MacDonald. Unfortunately, her son died at birth. It really took a toll on Maud and her husband's very fragile mental state. Um, I'm sure the death of her second son probably influenced, uh, her book, especially in her Anne series, because I believe one of Anne's uh, children is also born, stillborn, unfortunately. Uh, and in 1915, they had their last son uh, named Ewan Stuart McDonald, who usually went by Stuart. I- I'm glad that she had had kids because she she really wanted them, of course. Alright, let's get into the First World War years, and I'm just warning you now, this is depressing time for her, and it's about to get more depressing, but we're used to that here, aren't we? Now, the First World War years were really, really bad for Maud, but she was a big supporter of the war effort. She actually wrote many articles during this time encouraging men to go and fight, and for women to help on the home front. In contrast to this, her husband began to dislike preaching about the war and definitely only strained their relationship, but Maud would not give up on this marriage. She believed it was her Christian duty to make it work whatever the cost of doing so, which is probably not good. She really should have just gotten out of that marriage as fast as she could. Maud's journals in this time period show how obsessed with the war she was. She was consumed by it, and it gave her a lot of bouts of depression. Every time she heard about a loss in the war, she would go into a deep depression for a very long time, but she would get very happy whenever they won. Now, in 1918, at the end of the war, Maud actually contracted the Spanish flu, which is very relevant now, because that was the last big pandemic we had. Uh, so, I, I, feel, I feel a relevancy with Maud right now. Now, uh, she spent many days during this time bedridden. I believe she spent approximately 10 days, like, completely, like, wiped out. Uh, she wrote tons of journal entries talking about how sick she felt and how the flu almost killed her. And while she was really lucky that she didn't die, her one of her friends, uh, Frederica, was not so lucky. Uh, she ended up dying for the sickness. And worst of all, during this time, her husband basically ignored her while she was sick. And his mental state continued to be a struggle for her. I read this one crazy story about him during this time that he he had convinced himself that uh, he was one of the elects chosen by God to go to heaven. uh, And he would spend hours depressed and staring into space. And Ewan would tell his wife that he wished she and the children had never been born because they were not one of the elect and all of them were going to hell. And when they died, as he believed that they were all predestined to be among the damned. Um, uh, And Ewan also refused to assist with raising the children or housework. And he was often erratic and he was often often, I'm sorry, often an erratic and reckless driver as if he was deliberately trying to kill himself in a car crash. That must have been crazy to deal with. I mean, I I, I think uh, descendants of Lucy Mom Montgomery are still alive, and if any of them hear this, which is not likely, um, I don't want to be mean to your great-grandpappy, but he was a little, I mean, wow. I did not know this about, uh, Ewan before I started researching him, so this is interesting. 
Now, we're going to get into this whole part of Maud's life after she recovers from Spanish flu, where her publishing company basically treats her like crap. And honestly, I found it unimaginably boring when I was reading about it. Like, there was, like, a whole, like, section uh, in my research that I had about this. But I decided to just shorten it and try to give you a brief breakdown of basically what happened. So, her publishing company was not paying her what they agreed. So she tried to switch companies as kind of like a fuck you, but then there was this whole lawsuit thing, which I think she won, and she also had some trouble with her ex-publishing company making bad film adaptions of her Anne book. She especially hated the 1919 film, which she bashed its writing and the actor who played Anne's performance, but there wasn't much she could do as the company, the L.C. Page company, had rights to make Anne films, like she had no control over that. Now, in 1926, the family moved into the Norville, uh, Norville Presbyterian Charge in present-day Halton Hills, Ontario, where actually the Lucy Mount Montgomery Memorial Garden can be seen from Highway 7. Now, in uh, 1934, Maud's extremely depressed husband signed himself into a sanatorium in Guelph. Now, after his release, uh, the drugstore decided to give Maud a blue pill intended to treat her husband's depression, which was accidentally laced with this stuff called in oh incenticide. I I believe that's how you uh, pronounce it. I don't know how they did that. Apparently, it was a mistake on part of the drugstore clerk. I mean, medicine was crazy back then. People took cocaine for like headaches and shit. <laughs> um, and uh, this incenticide stuff almost killed him. And Ewan became so paranoid after he almost died. He accused Maud of attempting to murder him, and in some of his most lucid states, he would beat her, and um, he would beat her. And but other times, there there were a lot of moments of passivity where he would go catatonic and stare into space for hours with blank, empty eyes. And then he'd go back to his more aggressive states where he declared he hated God for making him one of the damned and he would never preach again and he would beat Maud for supposedly trying to kill him. Which, God, that must have been so fucking awful for her to deal with. Now, in 1933, Maud uh, published Pat of Silverbush, which I think kind of reflected a move towards uh, more adult stories for young people, unlike her Anne books with uh, Anne's sense of optimism and vibrancy, Pat is a moody girl noted, noted for being a loner and being rather odd. Uh, Pat's best friend in the story, Elizabeth uh, Betts Wilcox, dies of the Spanish flu, giving the book a darker tone than Montgomery's uh, previous books. Uh, in a letter to a fan in 1934 who actually complained about the dark mood of Pat of Silverbush, Maud replied, I gave Anne my imagination and Emily Starr my knack for scribbling, but the girl who is more myself than any other is Pat of Silver Silverbush. Not externally, but spiritually, she is I. Now, who? Oh, were the World War Two years when the world when World War Two hit, Maud kind of slipped back into the same war depression she had had during the First World War. Now, in the last years of her life, Maud completed what she intended to be a ninth book featuring Anne, titled "The Blights Are Quoted." I believe you can buy a copy these days. I included fifteen short stories that she revised to include Anne and her family as main as mainly uh, peripheral characters. Um, 41 poems in the book are attributed to Anne and her son Walter, who uh, unfortunately dies as a soldier in the Great War. 
and uh, there are other poems featuring the Blythe family members uh, discussing those poems. Now, the book was delivered to Mob's Maud's publisher on the day of her death, but for unexplainable reasons, the publisher declined to issue the book at the time. Now, Maud's scholar, Benjamin, let's call him Benjamin, I don't know how to pronounce that, speculates that the book's dark tone and anti-war message, um, in the book apparently Anne speaks very bitterly, bitterly of World War I in one passage, and, uh, the publishing company probably thought that it was a bad idea to publish this in the middle of the Second World War. Uh, yeah, it probably wouldn't have been good for her if it gotten pu- ha- had gotten published back then. Now, on April 24th, 1942, unfortunately, Maud was found dead in her Toronto home. Now, it's thought that she may have died from blood clot. I believe that's the general consensus and had a hemorrhage. But I did read a few theories that she may have killed herself because of her depression. I honestly don't think that's the case, in my opinion. I, I think she was depressed, but I don't really think she was she wanted to kill herself. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know her really know her mental state at the time. I just know she was depressed. Now, Maud was buried at the Cavendish Community uh, Cemetery, where both her mother and grandparents are also buried. Once again, I have also visited this place, and honestly, if it weren't for the direct path leading up to the, f- leading up to her grave and the flowers all around it, it's a very unassu- unassuming uh, gravestone for one of the most successful authors in Canadian history. Like it, like took like a me and my mom were kind of like being dumb and we were like where's where's her grave even though there was like a whole path leading up to it it was very funny all right let's talk about Maud's legacy now I think her legacy kind of affects all Canadians I mean ask most of us and we can tell you that Anne of Green Gable stuff is shoved down our throats like a lot like we love it here because <laughs> it's one of the things we're very proud of and if you go to Prince Edward Island there are two things that their economy runs on Potatoes and Anne of Green Gables. That's it. Um, I th- I think one thing that her legacy really hits is girls like me. I really liked Maud bo- Maud's books, especially Anne. You know, I was the girl who talked a lot, as you can tell. Um, and I was the little girl who had a lot of opinions, and I can't amount. I can't count the amount of times people would tell me to shut up, just stop talking. And, but when I read Anne for the first time, I found someone who reminded me of me, and it made me feel better. And it made me realize that I should embrace that part of myself, and it's not me, it's them that needs to shut up, so that's why I really liked her books uh, personally. But I don't think it's really just me. Uh, Maud's books have reached internationally. The actually second biggest demographic of Anne fans are actually Japanese people. Uh, Anne's books... Uh, sorry, Lucy's... <laughs> Maud's books got very popular in uh, Japan during the Second World War, as many young Japanese children uh, related to Anne and being an orphan. And uh, when and if you go to Prince Edward Island, there are busfuls, and I mean busfuls, of Japanese tourists there. And they are so sweet, and they love talking about Anne. I remember me and my mom were... Um, I think it was our first night in Prince Edward Island, and we were uh, driving on the coast, and we found this great lookout, and we decided to 
uh, sit there for a bit, and literally no less than 10 minutes later, there was this giant, like, Greyhound coach bus that just showed up with a whole bunch of Japanese tourists, and it was so cute seeing, like, how much they loved clearly being here and how much they were enjoying their uh, vacation. Now, Maud's legacy, I think, is just ever-reaching and super inspiring, especially for me, as I talked about in the start of this episode. I'm also working on a very similar book inspired by my own Canadian family in a very similar time period. And I just love Maud, and I hope that when I eventually do finish that book, I really hope I do, that she would be proud. I've really enjoyed um, researching her this week. She is awesome. Cheers to her and Anne of Green Gables and all her other characters. Hey, I'm back. So I just kind of wanted to take like the tail end of this episode to talk about the show Anne with an E and why now more than ever it needs to be renewed. Now, I know some people are annoyed with Anne fans for being so persistent about it. And if you don't want to hear this part at the end of the episode, you can just skip it. You just can pretend it doesn't even exist. But I think it's relevant. Now, this just isn't a regular show. We People aren't petitioning so hard to get it back because it's mindless entertainment, alright? This isn't Riverdale, for starters. Like I said, living here in Canada, Anne of Green Gables gets shoved down our throats. But honestly, I'm never sick of it. And I actually found out about this show from a clip on Instagram. And I had, I, so I decided to go straight to CBC and start watching it. And I gotta say, when I first watched this show, it blew my goddamn mind for a few reasons because of how it handles certain topics from the confines of its time period now there's gonna be mild spoilers so if you actually care about this care about this show and like you want to watch it you haven't seen it before you should just you should just skip this part now this show talks about feminism in a mature way and this show takes place in the late 1890s in canada it also talked about menstruation menstruation in a period piece tv show this stuff just doesn't happen in this genre and i think one of the most well-handled topics on this show was residential schools i have lived in canada my whole life i have spent my entire life here and i have learned about residential schools a total of three times in separate lessons in different grades not as units of study One class, only three, in my whole 18 years of life. I had never seen residential schools on TV. You can only tell me about what they were like, but showing me was so different, and I was not prepared for how much I cried about it. This show also talked about a black neighborhood that I had no idea that existed in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, called The Bog. Actually, while I was in Charlottetown, I tried to find out where uh, The Bog would have been located in Charlottetown. I was actually able to find where it would have been located, so that was cool. Not to mention the show has great black characters. Um, and the whole show expands on Maud's story, showing the other world outside of Anne and just, like, all the other stuff that was around her that Maud just, like, I guess didn't <laughs> want to talk about. Uh, for example, uh, there's a character named Jerry. He's a farm boy on the show. And... This character, he was a character in the first book, and he's maybe mentioned in a chapter in the first book, and then he's never seen again. You never hear anything about it. But in the show, he's still there. It's season three, and he's still there. He has a whole arc about it, and I learned more about Acadian uh, French people in that show than I would have ever learned in a classroom, because I didn't know who they were or anything about them. Uh, Not to mention, they talked about LGBT kids in the show. Like, they have two whole characters that are 
LGBT and they handle it so maturely. Like I said, this is a fantastic show. And as many Canadians know from probably watching the CBC the whole, their whole lives, um, they don't normally have fantastic shows like this. When I told my mom about it, she thought she didn't need to see it. I mean, she's seen the 1985 version with Megan Fellows. What else does she need to see? And besides, this, she's always thought that the CBC never has decent shows. But once I got her to watch the first couple of episodes in the first season, she was hooked. And we had so much fun watching season three together and she was about as devastated as I was when we found out it got cancelled. I mean the end of Anne's story shouldn't be her getting Gilbert. It should I, I wanna expand. I wanna see more of them. It shouldn't just be about the relationship. It should be I wanna finish all the other arcs that we got. I wanna learn more about Anne. I wanna see more of her life. Now, look, I don't want to bug anyone about it or just be annoying, but this show could be so helpful to talk about difficult topics and teach kids about these things in a form of an already well-done TV show. I, Like I said, residential schools, we, don't, we just don't talk about that enough here. And I saw it on a TV show that I love. Like, what, what a better way to talk about uh, Canada's past than with this TV show. And that's why we really, really need it right now. Thank you so much for listening to me on this topic. Bye. Alright guys, thanks for listening. Uh, if there's a certain thing that you want to hear, just like hit me up on uh, Twitter at Long May She Rain 2. Uh, the N at the end of rain is replaced with a 2, just so you know that. Um, thanks for listening, guys. Bye.